Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Here we are once again for another episode of the G3 podcast. I trust all is well with you, uh, wherever you're listening to the G3 podcast. Uh, Jeremy, how are things rolling over in Los Angeles? Things are good. Um, enjoying a bit of a slower season now that the semester is over and the church campus and the se- seminary campus are a bit quieter, uh, but things are good and there's a lot to do, a lot to get done. Looking forward to G3 coming up very quickly. Yeah, it's going to be here before we can blink. Looking forward to that. And things have been good with the holiday season, spending time with family. I trust that you have as well. And uh, just good food, fellowship, family. You know, it's always always a blessing indeed. Yeah, it's a special season. I, I enjoy family rolling into town. Uh, my sister was able to come out and visit us for a little while, and that was special. So yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good season. Um, looking forward to to Christmas coming up in a little bit. Just woke up the other day and thought, man, it's December. It's kind of, yeah, it's life is life is coming at us fast. It does. It does indeed. And just recently, as I was uh, just to sort of frame what we're going to talk about today, you know, just spending time around the home, just watching football and sitting there with my son and we're, you know, just watching these, these guys play the sport and, you know, all of a sudden an announcer just, you know, he, he's commenting on a really fabulous play and he makes a statement. He says, he says, man, that was one hell of a play. And I sort of sat there thinking, you know, here's my son who's listening to this guy talk about an athlete who just made a spectacular play and he does so by using a term derived from, comes from the scriptures, obviously, and is is really just using it in a very trivial fashion when he talks about hell. Made me realize that, and just reminded me in a fresh way, that our culture looks at hell, the doctrine of hell, and really dismisses it altogether in many ways. But yet when when the culture throws a bone to hell itself, oftentimes does it in a very trivial fashion. And that sort of made me think about the way in which my son heard that. And then yet, obviously, we're going to talk about it in in the context of our home. We're going to talk about that in the context of our church and preaching. But what are your thoughts when you hear that about how our culture really looks at the doctrine of hell itself? Yeah, well, it's... it's a topic that is is often neglected, um, and when it is spoken of, it's taken lightly and kind of thought of as as basically uh, an expression. But there's no there's no reality behind it, and it's it's been something that's been on my mind, uh, stirring in my heart for quite a while. The last couple of weeks, um, I've I've just been stuck on Paul's letters to the Thessalonians in and specifically on the subject of of the wrath of God. Those are glorious letters which speak about the hope we have in Christ. I mean, that's Paul's message to the Thessalonian church, that there's hope in the resurrection, that they aren't to fear, that they aren't to be depressed, that they aren't to worry about those who've, who've 
passed away to be with the Lord before them, that they will be raised and, and Christ will return triumphant. And it's a glorious message of hope. But woven throughout both of those letters is this theme of God's wrath, the impending wrath, the wrath that's being poured out upon the wicked, and the eternal wrath uh, in hell. And so, you know, as as you think about that over the the holiday, listening to the to the announcer, and I've been wrestling through these letters emotionally, theologically, just working through the subject of hell. I know we both thought it was fitting that we address it. It's a commonly ignored subject, but it's it's a vital subject and it's one that we need to have a, a comprehensive grasp on. And I want to read, maybe to kind of kick off this conversation, the section, it, it's woven throughout the two letters, but there's a specific section in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that has really been uh, heavy on my heart that I've been meditating upon reading over and over. And it begins in verse five. I mean, really, he opens up the letter um, with a typical greeting, and then he gives thanks for the for the believers. He boasts in them. But then he mentions in verse four that they're being persecuted, the Christian church in Thessalonica, that they're under affliction. And he says in verse five, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. And so he's saying the Christians are suffering for the kingdom, and this is a demonstration of the worthiness, their worthiness for the kingdom. Um, but then he he goes into the actual judgment that's going to be repaid to the evildoers, those afflicting. And, and listen to these words, Josh, and it's sobering. Verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And I just think of that imagery of Christ returning, that triumphant, that glorious picture, the, the imagery that will cause the redeemed to leap with joy. And yet to think of what that means for those, as Paul says, who do not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance upon them, to pour out his wrath upon them. It's a, it's a frightening thought. It uh, uh, causes, causes me to tremble. It causes me to weep at the prospect of those who in this life whom I love, who refuse to turn to Christ, of those multitudes who for generations and millennia have not known God. And the, the destruction they are now facing, it's a sobering reality, but it's one we have to confront. It's one we have to understand. It's one we have to preach. Um, it's, it's sobering, but it's necessary. Mm. Yes, it is. And yet you mentioned preaching, and, and that is indeed what we're called to do. So when we think about 
hell, uh, a, a very difficult subject indeed, but yet we must always remember that our authority and the bedrock of our own uh, understanding of this of this horrible thing that we know this this place of destruction and and fire and and pain and ultimately the wrath of God is derived from the pages of Scripture. And so, in other words, if we believe what the Scriptures teach about heaven, then we must likewise believe what the Scripture teaches about hell. Yeah, it's important, isn't it, to frame this conversation emotionally, to to define how do we approach this emotionally, because it is so easy to get caught up in the emotional dimension of these realities, both heaven and hell, and to allow those to inform and to guide our exegesis of scripture. It's mm-hmm. actually a, a fascinating quote. Um, I know some of our listeners will know, others may not be familiar with the, the, the theologian John Stott. He was a contemporary of Martin Lloyd-Jones and a, a wonderful theologian in many rights, but towards the end of his ministry actually vocalized uh, a position of annihilationism where he denied hell. And maybe we can chat about some of the dimensions of that later. But I was reading that over the weekend, his his statement on it, and he actually frames the conversation in a way that you and I would be very much aligned with. And he says this about our emotions when it when it comes to the doctrine of hell. He says, emotionally, I find the concept intolerable. And do not understand how people can live with it without either catarizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And you and I would agree with that, wouldn't we? That our emotions on whatever point of doctrine, no matter what they feel, are not the determining factor of what is true. Mm, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, we can't, we don't have the right to say, I don't think that this is fair, or I don't like the way that this uh, is stated, or this doesn't seem to be somewhat appeasing to me or appealing to me. Um, so, in other words, it's not really about what we think at all. It's about what God's word says. And so we have to always be coming back to to, uh, our source of authority is ultimately the Bible. Absolutely. And let me just say, to that point, we should allow the Bible to frame our emotions. Absolutely. There's got to be a commitment to the doctrine taught, but also to the heart with which that doctrine is taught. So if you consider those in scripture who discuss hell. You think of Jesus himself. No one spoke more of hell than Christ. And yet, what was the emotional framework with which he approached it? Was it just an indifference? Was it just a harshness, a couldn't care lessness where, you know what, this is the reality and most of you are going to hell and that's just how it is? Well, the opposite, really. We see Jesus weeping over the hard-hearted Israelites, weeping over them, saying, oh, how I long to, to embrace you, but, but you wouldn't. 
there was this emotional tension in the person of Christ, who is the perfect image of God, where he's actually weeping over the condemnation of the lost. We even see God himself, God the Father in Ezekiel 33, not not rejoicing in the in the death of the wicked, desiring that none would perish. And of course, we see that translated into the to those who follow Christ, the disciples of Christ, the Apostle Paul, opening that that monumental passage of Romans 9, which talks about the destruction and, and God preparing the wicked for wrath. But he opens talking about this unceasing anguish, this intolerable burden, which grieves him incessantly because of the eternal peril that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are facing in hell. And so there's got to be an emotional framework that's defined by scripture when we approach this very difficult subject. And to that point, Josh, I I know you and I have talked before about the glibness with which we've seen people approach this doctrine. Um, Do you think that's maybe a product of the neo-Calvinism? I mean, how have you seen sort of a, a glib approach to something so serious and, and, so uh, so tragic in one sense as the reality of people rejecting God and facing his judgment. Well, I just think that uh, the, the way in which many people in the church today approach the subject of hell is almost a product of the way that the culture approaches hell. So in other words, rather than being chained to the scriptures as the ultimate authority, I think what happens is that we are emotional beings, we're emotional creatures, and as a result of that, we are oftentimes swayed by the cultural picture of the doctrine of hell itself. So in other words, when you're when you're watching a movie or you're listening to someone speak, whether it be in a reality show or something of that nature, and they're talking about how someone has just recently passed away, and then suddenly, you know, you, you can feel the emotion you know, you can sense the thickness of the emotion. And then they suddenly start talking about this person as if they're looking down from above. And it's almost always that way. I mean, it, it, they could be describing their uncle or their grandfather who was an axe murderer, but when he passes, he's suddenly looking down from above. And so there's this almost this idea that it's almost really this universal idea that 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 people when they die they just bypass hell altogether and they go to heaven or or if it's not from that lens it's almost from this idea that well you know we just really don't want to talk about uh hell because it's it's really a a depressing subject it's really not positive uh, I was listening to the radio even today, and, and the announcer was talking to someone on the show, and she was talking about how she really appreciates this this show because they're really so committed to positivity. And when you hear that, you think immediately, well, if you say anything that seems to be negative, then that's a bad thing. So then that translates over into the preaching today, and it affects the pulpit. And there's a mission drift, and there's this this swaying that the the winds of culture have swayed the pulpit to where you have people like Joel Osteen who will say something 
about how he doesn't really want to preach on hell because, well, he wants to be positive. So, so I think that that's problematic. In fact, I, I would like to just play this clip of Osteen just to, so that we can hear him out of his own words describe how he wants to avoid hell because he wants to be positive. Just listen to what he says here. You know, you've been criticized for church light. Yeah, that's right. For a cotton candy yeah. message. Do you feel like you're cheating people by not telling them about the hell part? The no, because, part? no, I really don't, because it's a different approach. You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone, but I say most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should do, raising their kids. or the, You know, we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood or our, our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better, and I think that motivates you to do better. Now, that's... That's a man who's leading the quote-unquote largest evangelical church in America. Perhaps, I don't know what the stats are worldwide, but it has to be one of the, the, the leading, as far as numbers are, and really a loose definition of church, in my opinion. But nevertheless, in the culture's eyes, here is the pastor of the largest church in America. This is what he says about, about his approach to the doctrine of hell. So this is troubling, and I think that emotions are being swayed by cultural opinions rather than being chained to Scripture as our authority, and that's why you hear things like that coming from voices in a pulpit. Yeah, it's the swift, it's the, it's the, um, it's the movement that we've seen, as you said, in all of culture, where feelings are more important than facts, where truth is put on the back burner for our emotional stability or our emotional uh, preferences. And interesting, isn't it, that what Joel Osteen has just stated is the very indictment that God levels against the priests and prophets of Israel in Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8, where he says, they said to the people, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, God says, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's exactly that. The, the man commissioned with declaring God's truth to the people has capitulated on his responsibility to, to declare truth, instead wanting to gain the approval of the people by telling them what they want to hear. It is so much easier to say, peace, peace. And it's a message that's attractive. So people come because they want to hear that all is well. But God says, there is no peace. And the reality is, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of their rebellion against God, they stand judged by God. They stand to receive not only in this life, but in the life to come, the eternal wrath of a just and holy God. There is no peace for the sinful soul. And so the, the very message that can save the sinner is the message that, that Preachers like Osteen are withholding from the sinner. And it's interesting, as I've been walking through the, the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians, listen to Paul's indictment of someone like Osteen. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, 
in verse 14, you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And listen to how he, he talks about those who are persecuting the, those who are preaching the gospel. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out and displeased God. And now listen to this phrase. It's very interesting. And oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins. Now listen to that. What Paul is saying is anyone who opposes the preaching of the gospel, the full preaching of the gospel, which is a message of sin and judgment at at its core, is actually opposing all of humanity. Why? Because they're hindering humanity from hearing the only message that can save them. Joel Osteen is an opponent of those who sit under his teaching. He is opposing them. Why? Because he's withholding the only message that can actually save them. You frame it from that that perspective, you clearly see that it's people like Osteen and others, and there are many others, by the way, um, that will actually have a cross maybe on their logo uh, of their ministry. But not only do they avoid the the ugliness or the the vileness, if you will, of hell, but they also avoid the vileness of the cross itself. In other words, if you're going to avoid the doctrine of hell, you also need to sort of avoid the doctrine of the cross, because it's there on the cross that we see God pouring out the the wrath of the Father upon the Son. For instance, if you just think back to, uh, it was back sometime in 2013, that a, a hymn committee of the Presbyterian Church, uh, the, the PCUSA, uh, contacted the Gettys. They wanted to include their their hymn that they had written in Christ Alone. They wanted to include that in their new hymnal that was going to be released in the fall of 2013. But yet they asked, they had a, th- th- this unique request. They wanted to change some verbiage. They wanted to change one of the lines in their in their hymn that states, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So they wanted to change that to, quote, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They took the part of the wrath of God was satisfied and changed it to the love of God was magnified. In other words, they wanted to be positive. And so when they when they made that request to the Gettys, of course, they denied the request. And then the the hymn committee sent back a word stating um, that the song has been removed from their contents list with deep regret, simply because of the fact that they were unwilling to allow that that verbiage to be changed. So again, you have Osteen, you have the PCUSA, you have others that want to avoid the subject of the wrath of God. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a subject that that we have to face head on because the reality is every soul alive today, or or every person alive today, is a never dying soul standing on the brink of eternity, either eternal life or eternal destruction. And Josh. 
we should go through um, some of the realities that Scripture talks about hell, um, what it is, what are the the uh, characteristics of it, um, and then before we we sign off, I want to I want to talk about what our response ought to be to it. But but what are some of the characteristics that Scripture reveals to us about the nature of hell? In Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The very word there, wrath, is orge, which really just has in mind this this, uh, strong indignation that's directed at the rebel who suppresses truth, suppresses the truth of God's existence, suppresses the truth of of the gospel of God. And yet God's wrath is always calculated. It's not this, this loose cannon sort of wrath. It's, it's always, it's always calculated. But really when you read through the Bible, you see that the wrath of God is settled, passionate displeasure, but yet at the very same time, you see language that's, that's very, very troubling as far as the rebel is concerned. You see eschatological wrath. This is the wrath of God being poured out in the future, in the coming judgment of God. You see cataclysmic wrath. These are categories. You see um, consequential wrath. You see eternal wrath. And that's really the subject where we dive into the doctrine of hell itself. And Oftentimes when you're reading through the Bible, just maybe, you know, doing your your morning devotional reading, reading through maybe four chapters of the Bible per day, trying to read the Bible through in, in one calendar year, you're coming across language that's very much connected to the eternal wrath of God. And you'll hear words like agony and banishment and brimstone and curse and darkness and deprivation, destruction, distress fire, gnashing of teeth, guilt, hopelessness, loneliness, pain, suffering, pressure, prison, punishment, ruin, separation, shame, contempt, smoke, sulfur, torment, trouble, and weeping. I mean, you just hear that that language that's so common as it relates to the eternal wrath of God in a place called hell. And yet you mentioned it earlier that Jesus himself talks about hell more than anyone else that we find in in the scriptures because he actually believed. He believed in the the realness of this eternal place. And we hear people talk about hell in a trivial fashion as they talk about, you know, telling people to maybe go to hell or that was a hell of a play or that scared the hell out of me. No, actually, hell is a real place reserved for the devil himself and the demons who have rebelled against God. And yet, unbelievers who suppress the truth of God will actually go there. And I think one of the most terrifying characteristics of hell is that hell is popular. We're told in Matthew 7, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, that the the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
So as, as we read through scripture and we come to have a proper understanding of hell's eternality, that it is conscious agony of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation 14, we're told that there's no rest day and night forever. This, this conscious agony in being separated from God. There's this, there's this separation between the sinner and the favorable presence of God, where his, his grace, his common grace is no longer bestowed, but only his judgment and wrath. And it's, it's the wrath of God being poured out upon this eternal destruction of the wicked. And in all of these descriptions, the most frightening reality is that hell is a popular place that many will enter. And so that if that doesn't cause you to writhe, if that doesn't cause you to have a sobriety, if that doesn't cause us, of all people, those who hold to this orthodox position to be broken in our souls and our spirits over those who are who are perishing, who have who have passed before us into hell, or those who, if they were to die at this moment, would enter hell, then even as Stott says at the start of his 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 paper that that we must be catarized or something's wrong, if that doesn't cause you to be moved in anguish. And Josh, I'll just I'll just say um it has disturbed me. I think the frivolity, not just out there in the world, because we we've seen that. You see it in the announcers. And not just out there with some of these popular televangelists, but it has caused me to be disturbed with the frivolity with which many in solid reformed theologically sound circles have joked about hell, have made T-shirts about uh, the the reprobation or the election of and and the the sovereign uh, election of those to be to be uh, uh, destined for wrath. There's this frivolity about it. Even even having coffees made that joke about uh, reprobation and wrath, and, and you think in this kind of this faddish. Uh, way we've talked about people's eternal souls. And I don't think a single person can point to a single text in Scripture where hell is looked upon with frivolity. No, not not in one. And yet, the way in which we approach hell oftentimes is a result of the fact that we either have an elevated opinion of ourselves so or of humanity in general, so in the sense that well, we don't really think that people are quite bad enough to go to hell for all of eternity. Or we have a diminished view of the holiness of God. Does God have a right to send anyone to hell? And so the way in which we approach the subject is oftentimes we fall into those ditches because of those very things. And then yet you mentioned that the way that this this frivolous way in which we approach it it's often because of, you know, a, a theology light or because we've not read enough, because we've not studied enough. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, have you not read? Because if you would read, you would see Paul, before he ever gets to this massive treatise on predestination, he is weeping, asking if it were even possible for him to go to hell so that his countrymen would not. Right. Right. 
So we're not, you, you don't see Paul having some sort of coffee mug or a, a grungy t-shirt made that's making light of the theology of hell. You right. see the opposite. So then let's talk in the, the last few minutes here about how we should respond. I think Romans 10 is a good place to start. Um, what you just mentioned here, Paul begins Romans 9 with with a brokenness. Well, let's start in Romans 9. I mean, he's, he begins this treatise on the sovereignty of God, which involves the destruction of the wicked. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And then we hear these astonishing words in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, this massive uh, treatise on the sovereignty of God, even in his wrath. But it begins by Paul saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he says these words, and we've got to remember that verse three is written in the context of having just come out of Romans eight, the Magna Carta of the glories of salvation and everything it means to be joined to Christ. And then Paul actually pens Romans nine, three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So great is the wrath facing them that if it were possible, I may even wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ in all of that glory that they might be saved. We must not make light of this reality of hell. It, it, that has to be our starting point, emotionally framing ourselves to take this very seriously and very soberly. Yeah. And after he deals with the fact that God actually did hate Esau in chapter nine, he begins chapter 10 by actually praying for his countrymen to be saved. So you don't see laughter. You don't see him making light of the subject. You don't see him rejoicing in the destruction of these individuals, these people that he was potentially even thinking of their faces, his own family members, perhaps, and people that he knew very well. No, you don't see that at all. You see him, you know, just emotionally praying out, crying out for right. the sake of their soul. And I think that we should learn something. I think, in other words, our theology, good theology should always drive good evangelism. And good theology should always drive a, a deeper prayer life where we are pleading for the souls of those whom we love. Yeah, absolutely. So we need to take this seriously. Secondly, we need to pray. As Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. But further down in chapter 10, we need to preach. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verses 14 through 15 of Romans 10 are well known, but that needs to be our response. We need to preach the gospel, and we need to do so with a sobriety, with an urgency, the urgency of Paul later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
where he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The the strong language of Paul imploring the lost, please be reconciled. Don't go into the day of judgment on the wrong side of Christ. Don't go into the day of judgment in the wrong kingdom. Enter the day of judgment covered with Christ's blood, with, with an intermediary, with an intercessor who has stood between you and the wrath of God and has made atonement. Paul is imploring, he's pleading with his hearers to be made right. So we need to have the right disposition, a sobriety, a seriousness. We need to pray, imploring God to be merciful, but then we need to get up and preach. We need to evangelize. When was the last time you warned your loved ones who you see every day, coworkers, neighbors, family, look through your text messages, look at those names. When was the last time you warned them of the wrath to come with an urgency, but with a deep-seated compassion that is driving you to share the good news of Christ. And here's the good news. Paul has just said in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we're ambassadors imploring. And then he's, he gives some of the most glorious words in all of the New Testament in verse 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the gospel. Yes. And you mentioned preaching and you mentioned Paul preaching. So when was the last time that you've heard a passionate sermon pleading with sinners to be saved from the wrath of God, from the flames of hell, which they deserve? And I think about the the likes of, you know, we've talked about in Osteen, who's avoiding the subject. But then you think about church history and you think about men like Jonathan Edwards. He, he preaches this sermon that we know as uh, probably the most famous sermon in regard to American history. You think about the sinners in the hands of an angry God. And here's Jonathan Edwards, this man who rocked New England, this man that's been considered uh, probably the most brilliant theologian in American history. And you have this sermon that was preached and literally rocked the world. But it wasn't a sermon that was just, you know, about, well, here's how bad hell is and you deserve to go there. But if you listen to the words of Edwards in this sermon, he's pleading for these individuals to consider what they deserve, but also to come to the knowledge of the truth and to repent and to be spared from the wrath of God. I just want to read a portion of of Edwards' sermon. Listen to what he says here. He says, quote, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. 
and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, and nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And when you consider when you consider Edward's words here, this is an unbelievable, just emotionally stirring sermon, but yet he's warning of the danger of the eternal wrath of God. And, and this picture of hanging over the bottomless pit of hell, and then you think and you contrast that with today's preaching, and you just have to ask yourself an honest question, when was the last time that you've heard a preacher preach like that? But that's our commission, and we need to be faithful to it as as preachers, but as Christians in general, we need to talk and and discuss and proclaim this reality. There's there's no more serious topic, no more important topic for every soul to hear. And Josh, let me just say, in light of this entire conversation, um, the emotional wranglings, the theological implications. It's a heavy conversation, which makes the words of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 even more profound. The reality that in all of this, God will be glorified. And as saints, we will glorify God in the judgment of the unrighteous. He says this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, halfway through, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, that's the that's the similar description to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians one. This 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 graphic picture of Christ returning in judgment, and it's terrifying, and it ought to it ought to cause us to be terrified and to be urgent and to plead and implore and preach the gospel. But then John writes three more words, and it's in the English, and it's stunning what he says. Upon describing the coming of Christ and the reality that even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, John then says, even so. Amen. In other words, we will praise God even in yeah. light of this reality. Let it be done. It's, it's a sobering truth, but it ought to take our serious consideration, and we ought to praise God in light of his coming judgment. But while we still have breath in our lungs, we ought to preach the gospel, this glorious message that all who, who hear his voice can come to him and be freed from his, his righteous justice over against their willful, sinful rebellion against him.
John Lennon's song in 1971 titled Imagine. He was questioning the reality of God and really a a world that was without religion altogether. And there's there's some language that we see in that song where he says the following. He says, quote, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. End quote. And when you hear the words that have become so popular of our own culture, really, you think about the fact that people are really just living for today without a focus on the fact that there is a real heaven and a real hell and a real holy sovereign God to whom we will actually give an account for in eternity. And so we think about that and we need to really just frame this entire conversation on the doctrine of hell and think about the fact that we we really need to approach a sovereign God and we need to approach this holy God in a worshipful fashion, submitting our lives to him, but also with this reality that there are people around us, all around us, in our families, within the context of our own recreational uh, you know, bubble or circles of influence in business, where we have people that are actually on their way across this precipice into eternity, separated from God, separated from his love, and will only know God for all of eternity in the sense of knowing his wrath. And, and that's a terrifying thing. And so as we conclude this, what would be your counsel to people as far as how they should approach the doctrine of hell, but yet also approaching people that they love, people that we know who are actually in danger of perishing for all of eternity? Yeah, I think it all comes down to love. I think we need to search the scriptures and understand this truth and then allow the reality of that truth to compel us in love for souls and in love for the glory of God to share with them the good news of, of the cross. Jesus Christ has entered this world, took on human flesh, lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserved, bearing the full weight of of sin uh, uh, or God's just uh, just wrath against sin uh, on account of all those who had come to him in repentant faith. And we need to share that good news, that hope of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ rose for our justification, conquering sin and the grave, that we might live forever with him. It's good news. It's glorious news in light of the terrifying truth of hell, and we need to share it with our loved ones. It's it's going to only be um, compelled by our love as we study the heart of God, we study the doctrine of God, we study the truth of his word. Um, we need to be compelled to share that truth with the world. So uh, that would be my, my advice, is we need to seriously consider these things and allow love to compel us to share the gospel with the world. Yeah, so in other words, if you really love someone, you're willing to share with them the truth of the negativity of hell, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so in other words, uh, to, to, to say that you love someone, but to not be willing to share with your loved ones the truth of the eternal wrath of God is really not to love someone as God has called you to love someone. So I think that that's a very good word. So this has been a, a good conversation, but yet a heavy conversation as we think about both the, the reality of hell and the reality of 
of real people going to, to hell, people that we love, people that we know. So as we think about that, we would encourage all of those who are listening to this conversation today to think in terms of people that you could reach, people that you can pray for, people that you can share with and point them to the reality of hell, the reality of sin, but also the reality of God's love and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And beyond that, we would also encourage you to think in terms of joining us for the G3 conference coming up in January. You can find out more information at g3conference.com. We would love to have you with us for this upcoming conference that's going to be centered on the subject of worship. And so we encourage you to find out more information, to register there, and we look forward to seeing you in January. January.